You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. We're going to continue this morning in a series that Pastor Scott launched last week, An Uncommon Savior, as we explore the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And I couldn't help but, through worship, just realize as Jesus was hanging on that cross, it changes your perspective of worship when you think about singing those songs to our Savior, our uncommon Savior who's right in front of you. Yeah, and I grabbed some Kleenex because I'm tearing up over here because I'm thinking, man, here's Jesus, right? We, we have this image of Jesus on a cross like somehow way, way up. And I don't know if that's like old church productions or Easter cantatas and stuff that we saw for years, but uh, Roman crucifixion, they were about two feet maybe off the ground, so it was like right there. So here I go, right? Uh, But as I'm worshiping, I'm just thinking, man, we could sing these songs to Jesus as as he's hanging there in in pain and suffering. Your name is the highest. Your your name is the greatest. Your name stands above it all. They didn't understand that in the moment. The Savior that they were anticipating was now being crucified on this cross. And so the things that he said are incredibly important. What was he doing in that moment? What was happening? Well, today we're going to cover two words. Some of you are going, yeah, that means it's going to be really short and we're out of here. Two words, right? I thirst. Okay, we're all thirsty. Let's go, you know. But words are important, aren't they? Words matter. Um, Just for context, uh, when Leslie and I were serving a church in in Texas, pastoring, and I'm pretty sure we're thinking back on this, I'm pretty sure we were doing a series through the book of Ephesians, and what I do remember absolutely clear, we were in our little van with the kids strapped in the back with duct tape and a bunch of rambunctious little critters that they were, and we're headed, and I remember this clearly, we were headed to a Mexican restaurant for tacos. I'm sure that's not a surprise to most of you. But I remember my wife in her loving way going, babe, really great job this morning. And she's always very encouraging, even when she shouldn't be. She just, but then she followed that up with, you covered one word today. I'm like, yeah, but it was such an important word, (laughs) right? When you read the word of God, the goal is not quantity, but quality. Sometimes we pick up God's word and it's like, I got to get through six chapters Man, if you get through six words, if you get through a word, if you dwell on one critical word and God wants to speak to your heart and life through that, then just let him do that, okay? The the goal is is to get into the word until the word gets into us. So today we're going to cover two words, I thirst. That was the, now we're not doing his seven sayings in order. I'm just telling you that when you look at the four gospel accounts, there's different things. John is actually the only one that uses this phrase which I find it interesting because it fits the narrative of his whole letter. We're going to see that this morning. But when I think about words and simple words and simple words that are important, it reminds me of my friend Bob who owns a, a chain of pizza places up in Wisconsin. And, and as a boss, he said to one of his employees, he's like, hey, you should sign up for a 401k. To which the guy says, there's no way I'm running that far. <clears throat> Bob just smiles and goes, okay. <laughs> or like a dear friend that's in, in small group and we're, we're good friends and, and he sends me a card 
very sweet, very, just a, a few words. He says, get better soon. That was, that was sweet. I mean, just a few words, but very meaningful. But then he wrote, I know you're not sick. I just hope your preaching gets better soon. <clears throat> Tom, I will hang on to that card forever, by the way. Thank you. Uh, but words matter. The words that we use, we, we use words um, like disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, for, for clarity here at Southbridge, when we talk about the word disciple, I want to give you a, a clear definition of what a disciple is. And we're going to throw it on the screen. You can see it. But a disciple is one who knows and follows Jesus, is being transformed by Jesus, and is fulfilling the mission of Jesus. If we're going to pattern our life and our discipleship after Jesus, these are the things that we need to embrace. Now, clearly, in Jesus' life and in his ministry, he had people who loved him. He had people who followed him. He had people who said, I want to be your disciple, and Jesus said no. Not that he wasn't willing, but they weren't willing to pay the price. And, and, and when we start looking at, at church life today, I think a lot of us fall in some of those camps. Jesus is fascinating. By far the most incredible storyteller that ever lived. He was captivating. His personality, his miracles, people were drawn to him. People just wanted to be in his presence because he, he did incredible things. But not everyone was willing to pay that price. And what Jesus was doing on the cross was demonstrating what it is to pay the price to be a disciple of his. So as we look at these, these words this morning, it's important to know that, that words matter. That's why we, we come up with this common language. We want to know as a church that we're moving in the same direction, that when we say something, we all understand exactly what it is we're saying. We're not defining it differently. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, John is the only one who gives us these words of Jesus from the cross. So look with me if you have your Bible. John chapter 19 Let's simply look at this. After this, which simply speaks to a period of time, uh, some things that had been described, this period of suffering on the cross. So after this, after this season of time, this moment of time, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Your translation may say, I am thirsty. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. If you look at the screen, there's some things that are highlighted because there's, there's two critical phrases that are very important for us to understand as we unpack two words. The, the phrase, so circle this or underline this in your Bible, knowing or uh, twice it's used sour wine. Sour wine is, is important for us to understand what it is that Jesus asked for in that moment. So I want you to circle those and underline those because context is absolutely critical. When we come to the word of God, we come open. We don't come and go, wow, I really love this verse. I think I'll put it on shiplap and hang it in my house. If that doesn't fit the context of all of scripture, don't rip it out and start building promises around it. So it's important context of scripture is absolutely critical and vital as we study the word of God. So let's talk about these words just for a moment. Can I do that? 
Because it's important to understand the significance of these phrases, these two words in their context to fully appreciate Jesus mentioned in these two words. The second part, when you look at John's gospel, if, if you just look and you're reading through it, it's kind of divided into a couple of parts. Chapters 12 to 20 sort of be in the second part of his, of his gospel. Jesus uses this phrase three critical times each speaking to this moment. In John chapter 13, I'll, I'll throw it on the, on, the, on the screen for you. Actually, Randy will. Thank you, Randy, for doing that for us. Jesus uses this word eidos. It's a Greek word, literally mean to know or to, to comprehend, to understand in knowing. So John 13, 1 says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart of this world. So here, when Jesus knew, what he knew was his imminent departure. Jesus understanding fully, knowing that my imminent departure is coming. A couple chapters later, John chapter 18, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who is it that you seek? So first, he's speaking to his imminent departure. Now he's speaking to the future events that need to occur, that would occur in order for prophecy to be fulfilled. So Jesus, fully in control, he knows my departure's coming. There are certain things that have to happen. And then here in John chapter 19, he says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, there's, there's cognitive reasoning that's taken place. Pastor Scott used a great image last week in Luke chapter 9 when it says in Jesus, looking upon Jerusalem, he set his heart, he set his mind toward Jerusalem. Why? Because he knew imminent departure, certain things need to happen. Now we find Jesus realizing those things have come to pass. And so here he is on the cross. So knowing is important because this is not a mistake. Jesus is clearly in control. He knows what needs to happen. Jesus, to me, when I read this, knowing all these things full well, simply screams to me that Jesus is in total control. He'd already said, no one takes my life from me for I freely lay it down. Why? Because I know my imminent departure. I know the things that need to take place and I'll know when they're done. So that's important. But what is the significance here of this sour wine? Well, here's what's important about that. Because in two Gospels, in Matthew and Mark, we see them recalling what was pretty traditional in that time. Uh, the Romans were good at execution and crucifixion. This was not a one-off event. They were very good. It was a sport to them. They were like world reigning champs of crucifixion. They knew what they were doing. As Jesus had carried the cross along the Via Dolorosa, the way of, of his departure, and he gets to this place called Golgotha. Matthew and Mark both tell us when they reach Golgotha, known as the place of the skull, they offered Jesus wine. And Jesus refused that wine. Now, the significance here is there's two types of wine. Two completely different words that the gospel writers are using. Uh, because Matthew 27, look what it says. It says, when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink. 
that word that they use right there is, is, is actually the word oinos. It is a wine that is mixed. It actually says in the, in the text, mixed with gall. Some in other places in Mark and stuff, they talk about a wine that's mixed with myrrh. In a way, it's almost a sedative. It's almost a, hey, these guys are getting ready to die. We want this to happen quick. This may help it pass. It's almost a, a, a sedative of sorts. And it says, when Jesus, look what it says, verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink. Why? Because he wants to know. He wants to stay focused and in absolute control. It's like, nope, that's not for me. I want no deadening effect. Why? Because I'm in control. (laughs) I'm in control. No, I I don't want that wine. But there's another wine that is referred to throughout scripture, and that is this sour wine. And, and in essence, what, what it is, it's this vinegary wine. Your translation may say uh, a vinegar wine or a sour wine. And, and it was more, it relieved the thirst greater. It, it would almost be t- a, a wine mixed with gall or myrrh. Is, this is to relax me, to deaden the pain, a sedative. The other one may be more of a Gatorade effect, Okay. Um, it was typically used by lower class. It was used by the soldiers. There's a reason it's there at the foot of the cross because the soldiers would use this because they were on duty. They wanted this. I don't want to say it's a five-hour energy shot, but, but they, they have to stay alert. So when Jesus, fully aware, fully in control, he sees, he knows this is the sour wine. He knows the wine mixed with gall is over there. So for him to say, I thirst, it's like, I know the end is coming. This has been physically exhausting. I'm drained. Uh, You know, not that he needs a pick-me-up, but he wants to stay alert. Where others are ready to die, Jesus is saying, I want to stay alert. So when he receives this sour wine, it's a different wine. So he's refused one, but now he asks for another. And it's important to understand at this point, it's probably been at least 18 hours since Jesus has had anything to drink, any fluids whatsoever. And I say at least 18 because I'm not really sure all that took place at the Passover feast. Look at Luke chapter 22. As Jesus is gathering with his disciples, Luke 22, beginning in verse 14, it says, And when the hour came, he, that's Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knew. Verse 16, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 17 says, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now the Passover was a a feast and there's a good chance he had been eating and drinking up to that point. But the significance where we get the Lord's Supper, when he picked up that cup, the cup of redemption, he said, this cup I will not drink again. So, so we know from that point, I don't know how much he had at that point uh, to, to drink and liquids, but it's been at least 18 hours. And think about all that has taken place within that period of time. We know that when he left there, he went and, and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
and he anguished in prayer. He sweat. He was wrestling. You ever wrestle with God in prayer so much that you are parched, that you are sweating, that you are just burdened? The Bible tells us that, that Jesus was wrestling with God. He was heavy in prayer. He was agonizing in prayer so much that he was sweating, even sweat drops of blood. He was then arrested from there. He was put on mock trial. He's beaten. He's carried this heavy cross to the place of the skull. He's been beaten. He's losing blood. He's sweating. He's in the heat, in the dry, in the dust as he struggles to carry the cross. He's nailed and he's in pain and he's on the cross. Do you think he's thirsty? Of course he is. Of course he is. But it was exactly for this precise moment, without the dulling of the senses, that he accepts this sour wine in a way to revive him, in a way to sharpen his senses to avoid any clouding of physical or spiritual sensibilities, especially his mind, so that in that moment of crucifixion, he could come to that, that place where he and he alone would ensure the final surrender to God in death. So he's in full control. So we could look at these two words and simply say, wow, you know, it's simple words and we could read it and we could just pass over. But I think when we read these two words, I want you to understand they they are not to be overlooked as an insignificant moment on the cross. Rather that we see an uncommon savior declare two words, I thirst. And when Jesus declared those two words, at least for me, I see three things that, that are critical that greatly impact my life and your life today. The first thing that I see, write this down, it revealed the frailty of his humanity. It revealed the frailty of his humanity. That sweet little baby that was born in Bethlehem, we know him as Emmanuel, God with us. But he was more than just the manifestation of God, he was God, manifest in the flesh. He was both son of God and son of man. Not two separate personalities, but one person possessing two natures, both the divine nature and the human nature. The Lord Jesus, who's hanging on a cross here, was was God of God. He was man of man. John made this point extremely clear all through his letter. He actually began in John chapter 1 and verse 14. Look what he says. He says, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus was not a divine man. He wasn't some superhuman man. We, we, we like to kind of get this idea that, well, yeah, he was, he was Jesus, and he was God, but he was like a super guy. We, we want to put a, a uniform on him, make him part of Marvel or DC or something, but it's like, no, he was fully God, but fully man. And people go, well, I don't understand that. And I go, I don't either, but that's how cool it is. Right? Brainiac theologians will sit around, sip brandy and smoke cigars and talk about the hypostatic union of God and all this. You know, it's like, look, I don't understand. What I know is I worship a God who's unfreaking believable. Am I right? I don't have to explain everything. I certainly don't have to understand everything about God in my human frail mind. If I could do that, he wouldn't be God. I'll just tell you that. 
My wife, Leslie, gets irritated with me for a lot of things, as you might imagine. She's not here this service. She was in the first one, so I'm going to talk about her. Um, <clears throat> but I'm that guy that, like, will call these 800 numbers from cults and stuff like that and get all their material, mostly so I can burn their budget and throw it away. But, but what happens when, when they mail you stuff, they have your address. I'm like, well, I never really thought about that. But, so Leslie's like, babe, I mean, this was several years ago. She seriously said, babe, would you please stop calling all these numbers and getting all this stuff? She says, because what happens, they show up when you're not here. And, uh, and they do. Uh, but I had just a, they would just come knocking on the door. So I love having these conversations. I've had conversations with numerous cults and non-Christian religions and occultive stuff. I mean, it's like, I love this stuff. You know, I don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. I just have to defend my position. I have to be passionate about what I say I believe. And there was one particular day, some, some missionaries came to my door. And uh, these weren't the guys in white. They were another group, and they, they showed up. And it was cold. I remember because I was barefoot. It was a Saturday morning. I'm enjoying bacon and coffee. And, you know, there was probably chocolate involved and a taco. I'm not really sure. But I do remember it was cold. I was barefoot. I had no socks. And I'm standing on our front porch, and my feet are freezing. But I'm not about to give up this conversation. And, and the one thing that they got stuck on is this idea that Jesus could be God and God is Jesus and this whole Trinity thing and all that. And I said, so wait a minute. So what I'm hearing you say is that you want a God who's small enough that you can understand him. I said, I don't even understand math. I mean, I, and I don't, that's true. I don't even understand it. But I said, why would you want a God who is so small that you can explain everything about him. I said, that's a, like a puny God. That's a tiny God. I said, I personally don't want that kind of God. I want a God who is so vast and so huge that my mind can't even comprehend his glory because it's only that kind of God who can redeem me from my sin and promise me eternal life. Well, you know, I said, no, no, seriously, think about it. I said, how big or how small do you want your God to be? I said, the kind of God you're talking about is not the kind of God that would understand my needs and redeem me from sin. The kind of God you're talking about is not the kind of God that I believe in who can speak and all the universe is created. You want to try to explain that. I don't. When we talk about Jesus being fully God and fully man, there are some things in our frail humanity we're not going to understand. But what I do understand is that this frail human understood it all. As he hung on the cross, he understood everything about it. So he's not simply a divine man or a humanized God. He was the God-man, forever God and now forever man. He never ceased to be God, nor did he lay aside any of his divine attributes as God, uh, though he did strip himself, we see in Scripture, he stripped himself of the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. But in that moment, in that incarnation that we celebrate in December, when we're not confusing ourselves with all the other worldly things that are going on, when we get back to what Christmas is about, that the birth of this Savior who is God with us, his name is Emmanuel, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That baby born in Bethlehem was the divine word. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. And that his incarnation does not simply mean that God manifested himself as a man, 
It means that he became a man. He became what he was not before, though he never ceased to be all that he was previously. Anybody else just rocking it right now going, yeah, I don't understand that. (laughs) But the fact that God was a frail human we see, if you just, just pick up your Bibles this week and skim through and read the Gospels, you're going to hear phrases about how human he was because he, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He, he increased in wisdom and stature as children do. He was asking questions as young boys do. Why? 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 I don't know, man. I don't know. My boys would follow me around. Dad, why is this? I don't, I don't know. Go ask your mother. She's like way smarter than me. But he, but he asked questions. John tells us that he was weary in his body, that physically he was weary in John chapter 4. Matthew 4 tells us that he was hungry. Matthew 4 also tells us that he slept. Mark chapter 6 tells us that he marveled as a man, that he marveled at things. John 11, we're familiar, he wept. He cried. He shed tears of sorrow. Mark 1, he prayed. Luke 10, he rejoiced. John chapter 11, he groaned. And here we see him going, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. So it revealed the frailty of his humanity, but you know what? It also revealed the glory of his deity. It revealed the glory of his deity. Folks, you got to get this part. While here on earth, the Lord Jesus gave full proof of his deity. He spoke with an incredible divine wisdom. He acted in divine holiness. He exhibited divine power and he displayed his divine love, ultimately by giving his life on the cross. And when he chose, get this, when he chose in his human state, in his human nature, fully God, fully man, and when he chose to exert his deity, his power, nature was subject to his very words and his desire. He was fully man. He was fully God. Why? Because when he spoke, things happened. When he spoke, storms stopped. When he spoke, fish swam toward a net and jumped in for this incredible catch of fish. You think, you think Peter did that? No. Jesus, at his word, nature obeyed. Why? Because he's divine. When he spoke, dead people rose from the dead. When he spoke, demons fled. When he spoke, people were healed. Why? Because when he chose to exert his power in his humanity, nature was subject to what he wanted. That's exactly what's happening on the cross. What's happening is exactly what he wanted. It's exactly what he planned. So it makes sense that Jesus here, six chapters previous in John chapter 14, is the only one alive ever throughout human history who could simply say these words, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. No one else can do that. No one else can say that. Why? Because he was God. And how do we know that? Well, I'm glad you asked. When you look at the word of God, and in this moment, we're going to see exactly what happened. Old Testament, there's at least 69 major messianic prophecies. In other words, prophecies foretelling the coming Messiah. Of that, experts, again, math people, that's not me, will say there's 270 ramifications of those major prophecies. 
The idea that any one person in all of human history could fulfill just six or eight of those 70 major plus 270 ramifications is like one in 10 to the 16th power. That any one human in, in all of history could even do part of that, let alone all of them. Jesus fulfilled every single one of those messianic prophecies. Well, what are you talking about? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you're such an interactive group this morning asking questions because I love to answer questions. Let me just give you some. These are some of the, the, the prophecies about Jesus. It says that he would be born of the seed of a woman. It says that he would be born of the lineage of Shem, right? Noah had three sons, but God narrowed it all down. He said, nope, nope, not these two-thirds of all creation in human history, just this one through Shem. But he'd also become, he would come through the seed of Abraham. He would come from the line of Isaac. He would come from the line of Jacob. He would come from the tribe of Judah. He would come from the house uh, or the line of Jesse, from the house of David. It was prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. Anyone in this room been born in Bethlehem? Okay, you are not the Messiah, okay? Because the Messiah could only be born in Bethlehem. But the list of prophecies goes on. It prophesied about his names that would be attributed to him. It was prophesied that he would begin his ministry in Galilee. His miracles were prophesied. His parables were prophesied. It was prophesied that he would enter into Jerusalem on, on a donkey, it was, it was prophesied that he would be betrayed by a friend. Now get this, not just betrayed by a friend, but betrayed by a friend for what? 30 pieces of silver. That was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Not only did it say that he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, but those 30 pieces of silver would not only be received, but cast down on the temple floor. That wasn't far enough. It was also prophesied that he would then pick that up and he would go and he would buy a field. That was prophesied. But, but it doesn't go, it just keeps going on, it keeps going on, it keeps going on. Uh, his trial was prophesied. His clothes being parted and lots cast at the cross was prophesied. His crucifixion was prophesied. That he would be crucified between two thieves was prophesied in Isaiah 53. His hands and his feet pierced in Psalm 22 in Zechariah chapter 12. That his side would be pierced also in Zechariah 12. That his bones would not be broken from Psalm 34. That darkness would fall over the land, the book of Amos tells us. That he would be falsely accused from Psalm 35. That he would be silent before his judges in Isaiah 53. That he would be proven guiltless that he would pray for his enemies. We saw that last week, that he would be forsaken by God, that he would yield of his spirit into the hands of the Father. That's coming. That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would be resurrected, that he would ascend. And I love it because in Psalm 69, verse 21, look at this. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me what? Sour wine. Not only was Jesus a frail human, he was glorious in his deity. Because in that moment, what he was doing is like, I have to fulfill scripture. I have to fulfill scripture. I understand the imminent events that are coming. I understand that they need to be fulfilled. So what does he do? Jesus, knowing the scriptures, being in full control, knowing the will of the Father, and in obedience to fulfill that prophecy, what does he do? He says, I thirst. 
Almost as if to say, guys, it was a prophecy back in the book of Psalms. And you need to give me some of that sour wine. Two words that had incredible, profound value that you and I look at and go, yes, he was a frail human. He understands all the stuff that I struggle with. Yet without sin, yet the glory of his deity is put on display as in that moment he says, John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished to fulfill the scripture. You think John put that in there by accident? No way. Knowing that the scripture had to be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. Why? Because it revealed the glory of his deity. The third thing I want you to see when Jesus says these two words is simply this. It revealed his desire for intimate relationship. He was demonstrating for us what it is to live for Christ. In this moment, there's no question in my mind that his physical thirst and the fulfillment of prophecy was probably the greatest thing. But I see a component here because when we read the word of God, we know that Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, except Jesus. We know that Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin, what I earn because of my sin is death or separation. And up until this point, from the sixth to the ninth hour, when darkness came over and Jesus took upon us or took upon himself our sin, for the first time, for the first time, Jesus understood what it was to be separated from the Father. I think Jesus in that moment experienced the stuff that you and I experience all the time. It's a spiritual drought. It's an emptiness. It's a separation when we're not in fellowship with our creator and we will chase all kinds of stuff to try to fill that void only to find ourselves still thirsty. But I think what Jesus, part of what Jesus was saying is right here is like, God, I miss you. I miss that fellowship. I miss your righteousness. He emptied himself completely and he took upon himself our sin. And he was, he was now separated from God. There was this longing. There was this, this spiritual drought that he'd never experienced before. And in that moment, he's saying, God, I thirst to be reunited with you. I, I thirst for fellowship with you. God, I, I feel the separation that sin brings and God, I long, I thirst to be in your presence again. God, I'm reaching out to you, I thirst. Paul speaks of it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says, for our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, as he hung there, separated for the first time ever from fellowship with the Father, as he experienced separation, as he bore my sin, my sin, separated him from the Father, and he's just like, God, I just long. I have this thirst. 
God, I want it so bad, I can taste it. You ever had that moment? That, man, you're just so parched. You're so, oh man, I want this so bad, I, I, I can taste it. That was Jesus in that moment saying, God, I want fellowship. I want to be restored. He knew it was coming. He, God, he knew it was coming. It won't be long because as an act of his will, he is about to give it up. And he knows that moment's coming that he's going to be restored to the Father. And that thirst, that longing for the righteousness of God is about to be fulfilled. But in this moment, God, I'm physically thirsty. I'm exhausted. I'm going to fulfill prophecy. But God, even more, I long to be brought back into right relationship with you. I thirst for that. John chapter 4, as John was writing, we know the story as Jesus met that Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Do you thirst for that living water? With the presence of God in us, he, that's his promise. You should never have this spiritual thirst again. Why? Because we walk in fellowship with God. As disciples, we walk in fellowship with him. We thirst for righteousness. Uh, we want to, to enjoy him fully in our life. So what did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Echoing the words of Psalm 42, as David says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Is that your cry? Do you thirst for God? We want to fill our voids with everything else. Paul David Tripp once said, he said, asking creation to satisfy your heart is like drinking sand to quench your thirst. You'll fill your mouth, but your thirst won't be satisfied. What do we want to do? We want to hunger and thirst after righteousness to be brought back into right relationship with God. Quit chasing all the things of the world. Run to the Father. God, I thirst for your righteousness to cover me. I thirst for you. I desire you above all else. I want to enjoy you fully. God, you are my life. As we go to the Lord in prayer, I'm going to ask Bryce and the team to come. We're just going to chase after the Father. I want you to think in this moment of just being before the Lord Jesus as he hangs on the cross and he says, I thirst. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? This morning I want you to run to the Father. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. God, I run to the Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon. My soul needs a friend. So I'll run to the Father again and again and again. God, we want to thirst for your righteousness. We want to long for your presence. We want to hunger for your righteousness. God, make us hungry. Make us thirsty as we chase after you. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.